Well, over the past few weeks in this uh, series of sermons, we've spent some time in uh, both Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis 4 here and there, Uh, the stories of Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel. And um, as we begin this morning, I want to return actually to Genesis chapter 4, where we are told, just going to flip that slide. Uh, We're told in Genesis 4 that five generations, five generations after Cain, in Cain's family tree, there came this person named Lamech. Now, Lamech was not a very nice person, to say the least. Lamech had two wives, so that he is, in fact, the earliest polygamist that we have recorded in Scripture. And Lamech was threatening toward his two wives. Genesis 4 records a disturbing and very threatening poem that Lamech spoke over his two wives, spoke to his two wives. It goes like this. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So the basic idea of that little poem is this. A young man messed with me, my dear wives, and I took vengeance on him. I murdered him, so neither of you should mess with me. Again, as we said, Lamech is not a very nice guy by any measure. But what we need to notice in this little poem is Lamech's worldview, his worldview. His basic worldview is pay them back. And if necessary, as he says there in verse 24, you pay them back 77 times. Well, before we even get out of the book of Genesis, we have numerous examples of Lamech-like vengeance being carried out in a variety of circumstances. So, some examples. In Genesis chapter 34, the brothers of Dinah go on a murderous rampage, in essence, to avenge, carry out vengeance on their sister Dinah's defilement, the people who were responsible for that. Esau threatens revenge on Jacob, which sends Jacob into a 20-year exile. The wife of Potiphar exacts revenge on Joseph after Joseph had spurned her advances. She cooks up a false story about Joseph that then lands Joseph in prison. And then spilling over into the start of Exodus, we have Moses working murderous vengeance on an Egyptian who had beaten up a Hebrew slave. So even within the opening chapters of Scripture, we have plenty of examples of Lamech-like vengeance being carried out, being threatened. And of course, this idea of taking vengeance upon those who offend us, continues today, does it not? We all know that it continues continues today, does it not? We all know that it continues in our world today. Vengeful attitudes are still very alive and very well in our world today. 
Well, I want to take us now to Matthew chapter 18, where one fine day, Peter asked Jesus a question. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, there was a teaching that was current in Jewish circles in Peter's day that an offender could be forgiven his offense up to three times, but no more. So after three strikes, you were no longer required to offer forgiveness to the offender. So when Peter brings up here this number seven, Lord, do I forgive a brother up to seven times? Peter, I think here, is trying to appear really big-hearted, really zealous as he stands in front of Jesus. Peter more than doubles the required three times of forgiveness that was being taught in his day. Surely, seven times forgiving your neighbor is more than enough. Well, listen carefully. We probably know this story. Listen to how Jesus replies in verse 22. Jesus says to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but, notice the number, 77 times. Now, it's certainly no coincidence that Jesus uses this number 77 because 77 was Lamech's number in Genesis 4.24, Lamech's number for revenge. Remember Lamech said he would take vengeance upon people 77 times if necessary? But Jesus here in Matthew 18.22, Jesus comes along and what does he do? He flips that worldview of Lamex on its head. Jesus says, you don't take vengeance 77 times. You forgive people of their offenses. You forgive people of their sins. You forgive people of their debts 77 times. Well, what is Jesus saying here? I think the writer Peter Latehart captures it very well when he says this. Jesus is telling Peter here that his kingdom is not characterized by vengeance, but by forgiveness. It will be characterized not by settling scores or evening things out, but by canceling debt and releasing One more time, because I think that's such a great quote from Lateheart. He says, Jesus is telling Peter here that his kingdom is not characterized by vengeance, but by forgiveness. It will not be characterized by settling scores and evening things out, but by canceling debt and releasing Well, what happens next in Matthew chapter 18 is that Jesus follows that conversation with Peter. He follows that up with a forceful parable on the necessity of forgiveness. This parable has to do with the fact that for the people of Christ's kingdom, for the people of Christ's kingdom, are you a person within the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For people of Christ's kingdom, extending forgiveness to neighbors 
is a requirement. Forgiving others is required of you. That's not too strong a word. Required of you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be thinking all by yourself, not looking at anybody else, but I want you to be thinking about instances of unforgiveness that yet exist in your life as we are reading this parable together. May God speak this morning. May he come and help each of us here and move us to repentance as we listen to these very breathtaking words of our King, Jesus Christ. So the parable begins at verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, as we go along here, we're going to make a few observations, as we normally do. Notice here in verse 24 that the king has this man brought to him. That word, brought, seems to suggest that the man's coming to the king was not done on his own volition. The man has to be brought to the king, and perhaps this bringing is against the man's will even. Why? Is there sort of a forced bringing of the man? Well, because the man owes the king an outrageous amount of money. At the end of verse 24, Jesus tells us that the man owed the king 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details concerning what a talent was, But suffice it to say that according to my calculations that I did in my office this week, if Jesus were here telling this parable today, and if he was talking about 10,000 talents of gold, then the man owed the king a total of 190,146,600,000 dollars. So in short, what we need to see here is that this was an unpayable debt. This debt was so astronomically high that the man had no hope of ever repaying it. And that's Jesus' point here. The man can't pay this debt back. The parable continues. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, in this first century context, as Jesus is giving this parable, it was entirely common to be sold into debt slavery as a way for the one who loaned to recoup his or her money. And so the king orders the indebted man to be sold into debt slavery as the man is standing there. Verse 26. So at that point, what happened was the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, imploring the king 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. (laughs) Now, what's the man doing here? I think we can resonate with this a little bit, some of us. He, He is desperate right here, is he not? He's making a promise here that he knows he can't keep, and everyone else in the room knows it also. There is no paying back $190 billion. What sort of job would you need in order to pay back such a massive debt within your lifetime? And so the man here, he's just talking nonsense, isn't he? He's talking nonsense in his desperation. Now, before we go to verse 27, before we go further, I want us to take stock of how both main characters in the parable, so the king and the indebted man, so far, they have both been operating in the world of simple economics. Balanced ledger sheets. The king brings the man in with the aim that the man will pay back what he owes, at which point the ledger ledger sheet will be balanced, And even as the king sends the man into debt slavery or threatens to do that, he still wants payment to be made. If you have your Bible, you see that at the end of verse 25. And the indebted man, for his part, he's also operating in the world of simple economics as he promises the king that he will pay everything back to the king. So we need to see this. So far in the parable, both characters are immersed in a bookkeeping world. But things then change in verse 27. Suddenly, as far as the king is concerned, his simple economic equations, his simple economic operations fly out the window. Watch this, verse 27. Watch what happens. And out of pity, something you feel inside, out of pity for the indebted man, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So wait a minute, out of the king's, we need to see, out of the king's own internal compassion, he simply ignores the man's flimsy promise to repay the debt. The king ignores that promise, and now he forgives the man the $190 billion debt. He simply wipes it out. The man is released from his crushing burden. In an instant, he's released. And we shake our heads and we wonder here, as we look at the king's gestures, we think, what a costly gesture on the part of the king. What a costly gesture. And we notice that the king makes no conditions here, does he? He simply erases the mountain of debt that the man owed. What a king! The sheer grace 
of the king really is meant to arrest our attention here. What a king. But let's keep reading the parable, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, the guy who's just been miraculously forgiven of $190 billion in debt, when that same servant went out, now he's going away from the king's chamber, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now stop right there for a moment. Consider the math here for a moment. This man had owed the king over $190 billion, and that debt had miraculously been wiped away by the king's amazing grace. According to one calculation, the amount that had been forgiven would have taken 164,000 years for the man to repay based on the common wage of one denarius per day in this culture. 164,000 years. But now this same man finds a fellow servant out there on the road who owes him an amount that would have taken only 100 days to repay a relatively paltry, minuscule amount, and what does the man do to the fellow servant? As Jesus says here, the man seizes and chokes the servant, the fellow servant, saying, pay what you owe, as he's choking him. So get this, friends. We saw the king essentially put aside his bookkeeping career, In verse 27, when the king forgave the man so generously, so graciously, so surprisingly. But the man wasn't especially moved by that, apparently. The man continues, pathetically, tragically, he continues his own bookkeeping career. He now chokes out this fellow servant demanding payment of peanuts, compared to the monumental debt that he had been forgiven. The man had owed 10,000 talents to the king, and according to my calculation, the fellow servant owes this man only 0.02% of one talent. Pay what you owe. I've always found this verse incredibly sad, and I think it should make us wince a little bit when we read it. Verse 29, notice the language. So the fellow servant, his fellow servant, fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Wait a minute. Haven't we already had a character in this parable falling down and pleading and saying, have patience with me and I will pay you? Indeed, we have. It was the man as he had appeared before the king. Back to verse 26. The man had fallen on his knees, had implored the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now that same man who had fallen down in verse 26 in front of the king, that same man finds himself in the position that the king had been in, 
as his fellow servant falls before him and pleads, have patience with me and I will pay you the few hundred bucks that I owe you. And so the question right here is, will the man, the first man, will he imitate what the king had done for him? Will the man graciously and benevolently forgive his fellow servant's debt? Verse 30, he refused and went and put the guy in prison until he should pay the debt. So there's our answer. The man will not imitate the grace of the king. The man refuses to give up his stubborn bookkeeping career. He puts his fellow servant in prison. But there are bystanders. There are witnesses to what's just gone down. Verse 31 When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, maybe they had their phones out and they were filming it. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were outraged. That's one way we could legitimately translate the Greek here. They were outraged. They were greatly distressed by what they had just witnessed. After all, the man who's doing the choking had been forgiven 190 billion and now he's forcing a guy into prison for a few hundred dollars. The bystanders went and what did they do? They reported to their master, the king, all that had taken place. And at this point in the parable, we hold our breath a little bit. Probably this is not going to go well for the man who had been forgiven the 190 billion. Uh-oh. Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, what did he say? You wicked servant. See, there is a name, I want you to listen, there is a name for an unforgiving attitude. There is a name for refusing to forgive your neighbor when God has extended to you an ocean of forgiveness, and that name is wicked. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that $190 billion of debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should you have not imitated my grace? when you were dealing with your fellow servant? Should you not have copied my mercy with your neighbor who owed you a minuscule amount compared to what you had owed me? Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the merciless jailers would be an appropriate translation here because the Greek word in the original actually means tormentors. 
The man was delivered over to merciless jailers until he should pay all his unpayable debt. He would never be released from the merciless jailers because the debt was impossible to pay back. And thus ends the parable proper, a very bad ending, certainly not a Hollywood ending, for the unforgiving man. And what I want us to notice is that Jesus follows all of it up with an immediate comment in verse 35. He says to you, and he says to me, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. My friends, each and every one of us needs to hear this clear warning from Jesus Christ while we are still drawing breath. If we are unwilling to forgive, like the man in the parable who chokes out his fellow servant, if we are unwilling to forgive, we should fear for our salvation. We withhold forgiveness at our peril. And so may God search our hearts this very minute. If you are a person here today or watching who is stubbornly, persistently refusing to forgive, you should very much question whether you actually have been saved. Now, it's not that we forgive others in order to be saved. I'll say that again. It's not that we forgive others in order to be saved. No, God saves us sheerly by his own grace. None of our works, including forgiving others, is going to save us. The point is that nobody who is saved genuinely saved, nobody who is saved, nobody who has genuinely received the grace of God in Christ and has been rebirthed by the Spirit will be like the guy in the parable who chokes out his friend and refuses to forgive him. I'm going to say that again. Nobody who has genuinely received the grace of God in Christ and has been rebirthed by the Spirit will be like the guy in the parable who chokes out his friend and refuses to forgive him. Kingdom people, who actually are kingdom people, will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They will forgive others their trespasses. Again, forgiving others is not the basis on which God declares you righteous, and it never will be. Rather, forgiving others is an evidence, it's an evidence that you actually belong to Jesus and that he has saved you. Kingdom people will forgive others. And that's not to say that forgiving others of the wounds that they have caused us is an easy thing. Often it is very difficult. It's not to say that forgiving others comes overnight, because often it won't. 
There is often much work to do before genuine forgiveness can be offered and received. But the pattern for the kingdom person must be, will be, a pattern of forgiving and being forgiven. A pattern of forgiving and being forgiven. Offering forgiveness and accepting forgiveness. If you're a person in the church and you refuse to forgive, you just outright refuse to forgive, Jesus calls you wicked. And you are in danger of eternal punishment. Kingdom people are marked by their willingness and their work to forgive others and to be forgiven by others. And that's because kingdom people have had the spiritual lights turn on. As to the cost that God has paid to forgive them. Kingdom people know, they know with deep, genuine spiritual insight, they know about the billions and the trillions that they owed God. Do you know, do you know how much debt you were in as you stood before God? Kingdom people realize the depths and the amounts and the horrors of their own sins against God and how God at the cost of his crucified son, at the cost of his crucified son, has wiped away their debt. And the power of that mercy, the power of God's mercy pervades the life of the kingdom person so that when he or she is wounded by another, when he or she is owed by another, he or she will be merciful to that other as the Father is merciful, Luke 6.36. The kingdom person will forgive others as he or she has been forgiven, so monumentally forgiven by the king. The kingdom person will be a person who goes out and embodies the forgiveness, embodies the forgiveness that he or she has received from the king. The kingdom person is a person in whom the image of God is being restored so that God is more clearly reflected in that person as they go out and they forgive others. That is God-like. Forgiveness looks like God. Forgiveness smells like God. The forgiving kingdom person looks very different, looks very different and looks much stronger than the person in the world who is going to just weakly default to vengeance and say, pay what you owe to his neighbor in pathetic vindictiveness. Kingdom people look so much stronger than that as they forgive. Now, in case you were wondering, if you've been with us during this series, here's the tie-in with the subject that we have been tackling over these weeks, which is the subject of ideological social justice. We've pointed out in past weeks how forgiveness is lacking, sorely lacking, in this new godless religion 
called ideological social justice. There is a demand for payment. Pay what is owed now. Balance the ledger books now. Perceived injustices will not be stomached in ideological social justice circles. There is a drive to eradicate them now. The weeds must be pulled up now. They must go. The books must be balanced in the immediate. Pay what you owe. To simply forgive a massive debt is unconscionable in this new religion of ideological social justice. As Joshua Mitchell has put it, for proponents of ideological social justice, quote, the imbalance of payments that forgiveness provokes is too difficult to endure for those who are following down the road of ideological social justice. One more time, in ideological social justice circles, the imbalance of payments that forgiveness provokes is too difficult to endure. That is why, he says, identity politics demands that the ledger books be balanced immediately. Pay what you owe. But friends, the question is, will the debt ever be erased in that way where forgiveness is lacking? Forgiveness is radical because forgiveness wipes debts away. But where there is no forgiveness, like in the world of ideological social justice, the debts are never erased. It's just a continual seizing and choking and screaming of pay what you owe. I want you to imagine with me a world where gestures of breathtaking forgiveness broke out in regular fashion like they did in 2006 in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Breathtaking forgiveness. A deranged man had come into a schoolhouse in the Amish community there in Nickel Mines and he had taken the lives of five school-aged girls before he killed himself. It was a horrific situation, to say the least. But listen, because the Amish community had already had a long history of practicing forgiveness as a sort of staple in the very DNA of their community, because the Amish so often preached forgiveness from the scriptures, and because they had such a rich ancestral history going back hundreds of years in the art of forgiveness, because of all of that, they were soon doing some very astonishing things in the hours just after the schoolhouse shooting. Things like these. Reaching out in compassion, only hours after it happened, reaching out in compassion and forgiveness 
to the wife of the shooter. Even as they grieved so deeply, and the grief, of course, was very palpable and very real, even as they grieved so deeply, the Amish community did other astonishing things like inviting members of the slain shooter's family to the funerals of their own daughters whom the shooter had killed. Perhaps even more astounding was the fact that a large group of the grieving Amish, I think it was 30 or 35 people, attended the burial of the shooter himself, there to offer their compassion and their forgiveness to the shooter's family members. And they also brought flowers and they brought meals to the home of the killer's widow and they started a committee to donate funds to her because now with the death of her husband, she had no income. At one point, an Amish lady was interviewed and she was asked how their community could forgive the killer like they were doing. And of course, this was spreading throughout the world because news agencies had descended there. So they asked her, how can you forgive like you are doing? And the lady said this, we have to forgive. We have to forgive him in order for God to forgive us. And over on the other side of things, on the side of the family of the killer, the gestures and the words of forgiveness that the Amish had offered them most certainly did not go unnoticed. One spokesman for the family said this, quote, all the expressions of forgiveness provided a great freedom that has enabled the family to move on with healing despite all the sadness and sorrow. It gave them hope for the future and released them from the heavy burden, close quote. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a wow kind of a thing? Friends, here's what happens in the world when forgiveness is manifested like that in the Amish community there, when forgiveness is manifested in the human community, it astounds a watching world. The world looks in and it furls its collective brow and it wonders at such forgiveness. How can it be? How can it be? But for kingdom people, forgiving others comes with the package. It comes with the package. We understand that God has forgiven each one of us our $190 billion debt. In other words, God has forgiven us our unpayable debt of sin by having the King of Kings die as our substitute on the cross of shame by taking all of our selfishness, all of our pride, all of our wickedness and rebellion and transgression and punishing it to death in Jesus who died in our place on the cross. We understand that. We understand the grace that we have been given. We understand how God has so orchestrated it that we get to walk away from our unpayable debt. And that grace we've been given now acts as a power which pervades our lives. We are people who do the hard thing by God's enabling power. We forgive others 
just as in Christ God forgave us, Ephesians 4.32. Kingdom people are people who have digested the unassailable fact that, as Chris Bronze has put it, whatever someone has done to offend us always pales in comparison to what we have done to offend God. And so we reject the vengeful worldview of Lamech. We are not pay-what-you-owe people. We reject the unforgiving aura that is part of ideological social justice. As people of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we are people who forgive those who have trespassed against us. Let's pray together. Our good Father, we praise you and thank you for your revelation. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence today, Lord, to uh, work this word into our minds and hearts, perhaps for some of us to get under our skin for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord, you have a way of disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. And we are so glad for your presence in our lives. And Lord, I pray that the hearing, the preaching of this parable would translate into doing for each of us. And that if there is someone that we need to reach, to do the hard thing and reach out and say, either forgive me or I forgive you, that we, under the authority of Jesus Christ, would do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.